0: Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. It is the biggest week of the college football season. We've got big games all over the place, quarterfinal matchups in Ohio, and of course, three Thanksgiving games going on in the NFL. BetOnline has you covered with all the props, odds, promos, and parlays. Use our promo code Believe. that's B-L-E-A-V, when you sign up with the link in the description to this episode to get a 50% welcome bonus. BetOnline, where the game starts. <laughs> of the Take It Easy podcast live on the Believe Podcast Network. Except it isn't live because it is, as always, a podcast. Welcome in, everybody. It is Tuesday, November 22nd, according to my count. It may not be that according to your count, but we appreciate you stopping in however and whenever it is that you may be listening. Something that has kind of set up the last few weeks in my schedule is that basically right now, for those who don't know, graduated college in June of this last year. Uh, I started working out in Sacramento. I do some radio spots, work with the Sacramento Kings, work with some other teams like the Oakland A's, and basically my schedule has lined up as such the last five to six weeks that I basically work Wednesday to Sunday. And then Monday, Tuesday are like my vacation days. I put vacation days in air quotes, but basically my, my weekends are Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday through Sunday is like my work week per se at this point. So doesn't always work out that way. It's just roughly that's what my work schedule usually looks like. So what's happened the last like four to five weeks is that Monday afternoons, as I live in a city where I don't really know anybody, do some activities and learn to acquaint to a new place, uh, Monday afternoons have kind of become my day where I really have time to sit down and do a long form researched podcast. And a few weeks ago, we talked about a, a two hour in depth piece, or not two hour, a, a 40 minute to an hour in depth piece about Deshaun Watson and his impending return. That was on October 18th. I'm going to link that episode to this episode, as well as linking last week's episode in which we talked about Deshaun Watson and his impending return, because again, That's next week. It's going to dominate the sports news cycle next week. Everyone's going to have an opinion and talking points, whether informed or not informed. And we are going to have that conversation. And it's going to get swallowed by everyone having a talking point around Deshaun Watson, informed or not informed, which is why I did it six weeks in advance, rehashed it two weeks ago, and then last week. Um, have also revisited that piece that we did on October 18th. So I'm going to link that story as well. And that was the long-form conversation that kind of kicked this off. We did one on the Houston Astros, obviously a less important topic than Deshaun Watson. We did a piece about Joshua Primo, and then subsequently followed that up once we had the press conference from Tony Busby with a well-researched piece. And... Ah, uh, really? Some journalism per se, which is more the collecting facts journalism part, more than it is the actually doing investigative journalism. We we did Primo three weeks ago. Houston Astros last week. It was on the Buffalo Bills. Obviously, some more some topics more pressing to the sports reflecting society part. per se, some of the other ones. Although I think that injury culture in sports and statistical analysis of the Buffalo Bills and the competitive advantage they have in this marketplace is interesting as well. And so this week I was reaching the same kind of like two, three o'clock afternoon block, thinking about what long form podcast topic I was going to do next. I've been looking for a space to follow up on the Matt Areza story. Perhaps that'll be next week. Perhaps it'll be the week after, but we did a, a long-form journalistic piece on Matt Areza. Um, and the, t- the topic that came to mind for today for me is the World Cup. And the World Cup has all sorts of controversies, and human rights concerns, so much so that there is an entire Wikipedia page dedicated to 2022 FIFA World Cup controversies. (laughs) In research, I found this Wikipedia page, which I'm going to start off here because I find it incredibly, like, just a... I I don't want to say funny. I laugh because it's a depressing situation, but that's also the inner comedian in me. Like, just, it's funny that there are nine subsections. I'm sorry, there are nine sections, each with at least two subsections, most of them with three to four subsections on each of the nine controversies around the 2022 FIFA World Cup. Uh, From human rights issues to the climate concerns and moving the World Cup to the winter in the first place, transportation, the Qatari government, hosting a World Cup in the Middle East, uh, the cost of construction... The cultural and political issues, which is the fifth topic. I just listed like six. That's the fifth topic. Corruption within FIFA. The issues with facilities. Boycotts of the World Cup. The Russian invasion of Ukraine. Iranian broadcasting rights. uh, Media incidents and like breaking cameras of journalists. There are dozens, and I mean that literally dozens of controversies and human rights concerns as it relates to Qatar and the 2022 World Cup. So there's a lot of talking points around this, many of which have been articulated in much more coherent and clerical senses than anything I will be able to do on this podcast. The Telemundo broadcast on NBC did a great job of pointing out the human rights atrocities as it relates to this World Cup, which is that an estimated 6,000 to 12,000 migrant workers, mostly from Bangladesh and Pakistan and Nepal, uh, were contracted to work in Qatar building everything around the World Cup, whether it's eight to nine gigantic stadiums, a hundred hotels, a brand new airport, a gigantic infrastructure that invested over $200 billion into the Qatari economy, which is part of building this small country, this roughly the size of Connecticut into a global superpower because they are a small country run by run by the islamic state which is the best way i can phrase it the without going deeper into the 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 geopolitical issues around qatar and who runs the government basically the islamic state has control of the qatari government and based on sharia law i'm butching that word a little bit sharia sharia based on that sharia law they are governing the country of qatar and they have lots and lots of resources because it is a very rich oil and natural gas line. In fact, literally yesterday, on the first day of the World Cup, Qatar and China reached an agreement to have, their, uh, to have China's natural gas supplied to them from Qatar for the next 27 years. So similar to the human rights concerns with countries like Saudi Arabia and uh, government deals that the United States has done with them, whether it be the United Arab Emirates... Uh, whether it be other such countries with uh, what we think of as oil-rich nations, which I put "oil-rich" in air quotes because I know that can be code word for brown people in the Middle East. When we think of countries where the the driver of their economy comes overwhelmingly through oil, that is a situation in and that is a situation in which the Qatari government has lots of resources and uh, the 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 average um. GDP per capita, which is GDP per person in Qatar, at one point was larger than any other country in the world. That's changed now that the population dynamics of Qatar have changed. But basically, you got a whole lot of very, very rich people in Qatar. The country is under control of the Muslim state, and they are basically run under the Sharia law, which is, in. we'll talk about it more as we go along here, but basically that's the background for the Qatar World Cup. And so you have dozens and dozens of human rights concerns and controversies around this World Cup beginning with how it got there in the first place which was basically in 2008 Qatar decided we're going to use all of this money we have to build this small little country on the coast of Saudi Arabia into a into a like legitimate 21st century country and that's going to involve hundreds of billions of dollars in infrastructure spending and a big part of that has come through this World Cup bid that they bribed officials in order to. They allegedly bribed officials because there had there have been some not necessarily prosecutions they they details reveal that officials had been bribed in many cases officials had been bribed on camera and those people had been removed from bidding on the world cup and yet qatar still ended up getting the world cup decided in 2008 they were going to begin this massive spending project to legitimize themselves as a country and then in 2010 they get the world cup bid Doesn't take a whole lot of circumstantial evidence that already exists in order to reach that place. And so you have basically an incredibly rich small population of the country, and so migrant labor makes up 95% of the laborers in the country, very similar to the United States. I mean, you could go back to basically 18th century United States history of like, hey, in California, they imported migrant workers from China and Mexico in order to build railroads in order to build infrastructure in order to farm agriculture you can literally point to that and say yes the united states used the same situation because you can get cheap labor imported from other countries remove their passports and there you go so basically you're following the exact same pattern of 17th and 18th century america in terms of bringing cheap labor into the country making it forced labor, suppressing their wages, maximizing profits, and building a new country from scratch. They are literally following the 17th and 18th century models of the United, or sorry, the 18th and 19th century models of the United States, which, as we know, involves a whole lot of forced labor and massive human rights atrocities many of which the United States government has apologized for, many of them they will not, and also includes the genocide of the Native American peoples. So you can point to that and say like, hey, very similar situation happening in Qatar based on where their country is in terms of establishing themselves and having a lot of money concentrated at the top and needing laborers at very cheap prices because the basic concept of economics is you maximize revenues and and uh, minimize costs. One of the ways you can minimize costs is with forced labor. Similar situation to what happened with China and the 2022 Olympics. Which brings me to the point that I want to talk about today. That's kind of the background of everything happening with the Qatari World Cup. Again, like I said, there are way more articulate ways and people doing it. Like I said, the Telemundo broadcast for NBC does a great job. That clip is on Twitter, and I'll link it to this episode if you want to hear more about that. Um, Last Week Tonight with John Oliver did an in-depth piece both in 2015 and this last weekend about the Qatar World Cup, and there's a really good... There's really good information if you want to know some if you want to know a little bit about a lot of the controversies, that's a good place to go. It gives you a little bit about each. And the Telemundo piece does a great job of diving into situation with migrant workers and and there are all sorts of places that are doing great job. If you want to hear uh, John Amici, who's someone that I've cited his book before in his work as a leader, first basketball player to um, be publicly out after his retirement and play. he played in the NBA for like 10 years and now he works as a clinical psychologist in England. He, he did a great piece. I'll link that too. There's all sorts of great places that you can go to find more information about this and the myriad of controversies surrounding the 2022 World Cup. I want to dive into one of them specifically today, and before we do that, there's a couple points I want to put out on the front end. I do not watch soccer. The last time I watched a soccer match from start to finish was the 2018 World Cup the one that was won by France, and you had uh, Croatia going on this long run, and 2018 summer was a really, really not great time for me, and I was uh, throwing a lot of my emotional stability into sports, and the big sporting event at the time was the World Cup, so I was waking up at 5 a.m. to watch Icelandic soccer, and that fun story, and really doing all the stuff, the rah-rah soccer stuff that Um, someone with a maybe bit of a naivete about the world might enjoy as it relates to learning about soccer and watching soccer but that's the last time I've seen a soccer match from start to finish was the 2018 World Cup and I got super invested in the 2014 World Cup as a 13 year old kid 2010 World Cup was the first time that I really started investing into soccer um, in a way that was any kind of meaningful because I didn't know anything about soccer prior to that I mean I was like 10 years old but like You know, I've watched the World Cups in past years, but again, the last time that I watched a soccer match start to finish was the 2018 World Cup. There's a whole lot of sports. There's also other things that I find interesting. I'm learning to divest myself from sports. And so one of the blind spots for me is global soccer. It's one of the sports that I just kind of have a base level of information on. I can tell you the best players for most of the countries. I can tell you about... Messi, Ronaldo, uh, Benzema, um, Kylian Mbappe, Harry Kane, you know, I can give you like 20 stars in soccer and know what countries they're from, and for some of them, either the national team they currently play for, or sorry, the club team they currently play for, or the club team they're like one team removed from, but again, not a soccer person, and I am taking on this World Cup with the same perspective that I had on the Olympics in 2022. And the perspective I'm taking on the Olympics of 2022 is I'm someone who is on the fringes of whether or not I will or won't watch the Olympics. I don't particularly find the whole rah-rah patriotism thing something that appeases me, The human interest stories are something that's not interesting to me because they're sports that I don't particularly watch in the first place. And the watered-down product that NBC usually provides is entertaining to others and it's not entertaining to me. So I'm someone who won't go out of their way to watch the Olympics. And because of all of the... Human rights atrocities associated with that Olympics, whether it be Uyghur Muslims in China basically being whitewashed out of the Olympic coverage, whether it be the speech that the IOC president gave that was very much Chinese propaganda. And the lack of human rights for the Chinese people, the lack of basic freedoms as it relates to uh, the, the president of China who basically has just removed term limits at this point and operates as a functioning authoritarian leader while removing rights for people in China very similarly to an authoritarian regime. And of course, the genocide of Muslims, uh, as I talked about off the top, like you could point to those human rights atrocities associated with the Olympics, the IOC whitewashing such behavior, NBC as a media partner, whitewashing that sort of behavior and uh, and all of the controversies in human rights, basic human rights violations. I know the United States commits tons of human rights violations, the basic human rights violations associated with that. And that was the thing that put me over the top on like because I was already on the fringes, I'm the person who will take the moral stand of not watching something because I'm not sacrificing that much. Like I'm sacrificing maybe a few hours of Olympic coverage and an interesting human interest story that will carry with me. That's not a ma- that's not a massive sacrifice. And so because of that, it's just it it's what works for me. And I'm taking the same approach with the World Cup this time around, which is don't really have a deep-rooted interest in soccer. Therefore, it's easy for me to just say, I can hold powerful people accountable by withholding my dollar, and in this case, withholding the viewership and coverage of the World Cup. So that's where I stand on this, is basically like, I'm the person, if you're looking for the person who's like, I might have watched the World Cup, I might have watched USA versus Wales, and because of all of the human rights atrocities and controversies associated with this corrupt organization associating with a country with a very poor human rights record, and also kind of going to bat for a country with a poor human rights record and the moral flexibility that's associated with that, I can point to that and say, hey, you know what? I'm the person who will flip their decision to watch or not watch based on all of the circumstantial evidence. But again, if it's like a spectrum of like people who are hardcore soccer fans that will travel to Qatar to watch their country play compared to someone who has zero interest in soccer at all, if that's the spectrum that we're talking about there, I'm probably pretty close to the middle I'm someone who like the threshold of watching, which is basically the only sort of participation I might have in soccer is like, hey, I'm a casual sports fan. This is the thing everyone's talking about. United States playing against Iran or the United States playing against Wales or the United States playing against England. That's something that might be a worthy watching event. And I'm just going to not spend the 10 hours watching the coverage on Fox. That's Again, that's not a difficult decision for me to make. Ten hours of watching a product that I don't really get super invested in in the first place or not do that and feel better because I'm not supporting the morally abhorrent World Cup. You know, it's an easy decision for me to make. It's not as easy of a decision for other people. This is just the thing that swings me to the other end of the pendulum where I'm like, I will give them zero hours of my time instead of the insignificant 8 to 10 hours of my time that I might have given the World Cup all the way through and through. It wasn't going to be 50 to 60 or 70 hours of coverage like I did in 2018, but maybe it was going to be 5 to 10. Maybe I was going to watch all the U.S. World Cup games and the post-game coverage. But it's easy for me to make that choice and say, Morals will put it at zero. Again, that's a super easy choice for me to make compared to what other people are. We put our morals and ethics in different places and have our own interests. Like, I understand someone, I've seen a lot of people who are diehard soccer fans really struggling with how to talk about and grasp the fact that they're going to watch and support the World Cup but maybe not spend money on that extra jersey. You know, it's it's putting your morals in different places, and that's totally understandable. It's a conflict that we all wrestle with and just try to do our best over and over again. We'll all put our morals and ethics in different places because we're all unique individuals with different interests. As it comes to condoning the moral and ethical behavior of the NFL, we're all walking an incredibly weird tightrope walk, because there's a whole lot of issues around the NFL and their morals and ethics as a corporation. I would prefer to not support a corporation. In fact, I give the NFL as little money as I can, which is basically, I still support the NFL's media partners and, you know, talk about football all the time with on, within this podcast. Like, I get it. it. Like, we all place morals and ethics in different places and all have different supports and not supports in different places and oh as the years have gone on i've slowly divested from football but it's not something where i can just go cold turkey because i still really enjoy getting paid to have a dream of working in sports or getting paid to talk about sports being a dream of mine so at a certain point you got to try and thread that needle and it's an incredibly difficult needle to thread as it relates to the sports that I personally have a have an interest in. Um, but because I'm not a soccer person, it's easy for me to look at that and say, well, that's easy choice for me. I will just not watch any of the World Cup and give Fox zero of my dollars and give FIFA zero of my dollars or attention. So that's my preface on the front end. I want to establish my position as it relates to the World Cup. Now, I want to talk about one of the controversies and human rights issues as it relates to the World Cup specifically. And like I said, some of the links that I've posted in this episode and other places are really good about talking about the situation with migrant workers, uh, talking about the issues with anti-Semitism as it relates to the Muslim state and the Sharia law in the Qatari government, uh, talking about the issues with infrastructure, talking about the uh, bans on alcohol, some of the morals and ethics police that exist within that country, um, bribery, boycotts, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I'm just kind of listing some of these off the list of controversies here. So again, there's a lot of different places you can find to get those stories. The one that I want to talk about specifically today is LGBTQIA plus people, and LGBTQIA allies as it relates to the Qatari government and the 2022 Qatar World Cup. And the first place I'd like to start before we start talking about specific cases is the laws as it relates to criminalization of homosexuality in countries such as Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and Iran. Homosexuality is illegal and criminalized under many of these Sharia law states such as Qatar. In Qatar, you can face up to 7 years in prison for being publicly gay. You can potentially face some sort of physical punishment or I mean there have been no documented cases of execution specifically within Qatar as it relates to being publicly gay and publicly lgbtqia plus in countries such as iran as you're seeing uh, perhaps on the news the iranian people protesting against the government and specifically iranian women leading those protests against the uh the dictatorship within iran there have been documented cases of gay people and lesbian people and LGBTQIA plus people being executed within the country by the the quote-unquote morals police, which is kind of the colloquial term for what the Iranian government uses to enforce their moral laws and the criminalization of moral and ethical behavior that whatever the government deems to be morally abhorrent or deems to be more unethical, um, like being gay. And so there are documented cases of execution there although there have been none in uh Qatar. Qatar has had a uh, documented history of um reassimilation camps and taking gay people and moving them into camps to quote unquote turn them straight and really again like 18th 19th century United States type of behavior and laws As it relates to—and I know a lot of this still exists today in many places, especially as we move towards a more authoritarian right and uh, quote-unquote traditional values within the United States. Uh, This exists in Russia, where the the secret police send you to concentration camps. As it relates to Qatar, there's only one publicly out Qatari citizen, which is uh, a man named Dr. Nasser Mohammed. Uh, Dr. Nassar Muhammad uh, came out publicly as queer and had to move to the United States after doing so. This was around 2011. And as he, there's a story done by Time that I'm citing here. And again, it's linked in the description of this episode. Um, one of the things that he talked about is that as a result, he was estranged from his family and his family had to uh, basically renounce their essentially renounce their commitment to him and connection to him as many people do. Enos Cantor had a similar situation when he left Turkey. Uh, he lost his inheritance and has claimed asylum in the United States on the basis that he faces persecution in Qatar uh, because of his sexual orientation in the John Oliver piece that was done on Sunday they speak to a publicly out Qatari citizen who had, again also had to seek asylum in the United States because of his sexual orientation. And so because it is illegal to be gay and because it is criminalized within the country, um, they have documented cases of taking people who are not publicly out, but have either been criminalized or prosecuted under whatever their legal system dictates are the terms for prosecution for being gay and have been sent to reassimilation camps. And so... All of that is in the backdrop of the World Cup where the Qatari government is saying the correct things publicly, which is um, you can be gay and show up to the World Cup stadiums. You can wear pride labeled, you know, maybe a T-shirt or an armband. Uh, You could bring pride flags potentially into the stadium, although they didn't specifically address that. And then as it got closer to the World Cup, the Qatari government implemented policies in the immediate lead-up to the World Cup that reneged on statements that had really just been more for posturing publicly in the lead-up to the World Cup. Uh, This is a similar situation to what you saw with uh, probably the story of banning alcohol Within the stadium because it is illegal to consume alcohol publicly in Qatar under the same Sharia law based on the the dictating of the Muslim state and the people who are in power there. And so because it is illegal to consume alcohol and yet Budweiser is one of the premier sponsors of the, the World Cup and basically when the World Cup was held in Brazil in 2014 Budweiser got the laws changed in Brazil to allow the sale of beer at their stadiums uh in this situation the qatari governments will ended up winning in this case and fifa who you know once you accept bribes there's a power balance shift whereas in 2014 fifa can dictate the terms of brazil's laws as it relates to selling alcohol and in 2022 they end up folding their hand and the Qatari government ends up being allowed to ban the sale of alcohol within the stadium because once you take bribes, you lose your power. You took the money, now you have lost your power in that situation. Again, they haven't been criminally prosecuted as it relates to bribery We have all of the circumstantial evidence we need to confirm that bribes were involved in Qatar's awarding of the 2022 World Cup, as well as Russia's 2018 World Cup bid, and perhaps once again as it relates to the 2030 Saudi Arabian bid for the World Cup. You can point to all of that and see how bribery ends up shifting the balance of power and allows the Qatari government to ban the sale of alcohol two days before the World Cup and to engage in behavior such as what we saw in the lead up to the World Cup. So for those who are listening to this, the I'm actually I'm going to play right now the the John Amici clip from Twitter that's gone around because it it highlights what I want to talk about as it relates to the specific instances as it relates to gay rights in Qatar and really just globally, as like you know, you see a nightclub, you see a gay nightclub getting shot up over the weekend. Once again, you you can point to these situations and say the same thing in America because all of this rhetoric follows the same pattern, which is conspiracy theories about gay people, conspiracy theories about LGBTQIA plus people leads to dead gay people and leads to dead LGBTQIA plus people. Conspiracy theories about gay people lead to persecuted and dead gay people. And this same situation is playing out in America as is the case in Qatar. So I want to start off by playing the John Amici clip that's linked in the description of this episode, or at least a part of it.
1: There's a question about what World Cup players and officials should be doing in response to the obvious and blatant human and civil rights violations of the country where the World Cup is being held. I don't think it matters what they do. I'm not particularly supportive of people who have earned lots of money by supporting that regime But it's already happening now Every benefit that was wanted is gained The, the seven to 12,000 people who died building those stadiums Are already dead and they can't be undeaded Their families won't be reimbursed anymore Because of any statement made It's too late The last two World Cups have been held by Russia and Qatar If there was a moral position in football, it was murdered years ago. I'd love for players to educate themselves, to understand that the very stadiums they're in are tombs of the dead. And to examine how they feel about that as they kick the ball. I'd love for officials to speak out eloquently about the fact that they don't think that gay people should be hurled from buildings or stoned or sent to camps to be re-educated to be straight. But it's all too late for this.
0: Again, that clip is courtesy of John Amici on his Twitter account. You can find the link to the full clip in in the description of this episode. And the parts that I wanted to take from it as it relates to specific cases of anti-LGBTQIA plus rhetoric and actions as the World Cup has now started is all of this is symbolic in nature and it's putting up a point that I don't believe that this is right and also these are things that were out of my control as it relates to players specifically speaking out. And the first case that I want to cite is players were going to wear one-love armbands for the World Cup and one-love basically pride t-shirts, which is the simplest way to phrase it. And FIFA, along with the Qatari government, threatened to penalize players for wearing those armbands. Publicly, they threatened to penalize players for wearing armbands Privately, there may be other circumstances with which we don't know about, and I fully acknowledge that the behavior doesn't match what was being put out in front, which was threatening to get a yellow card is not something, from my vantage point, as someone who's not a big soccer person, that would deter someone enough to not wear the armband, or perhaps deter a team from wearing those armbands in a circumstance of they can't stop all of us and at the same time it'd be it's incredibly courageous to do that in a play when you have to play in a country in which you are not welcome by the government the players will have some level of protection and at the same time it will not be the same level of protection that the common person has as it relates to making protests, or the common uh, Iranian who is traveling to Qatar will have uh, when they try and bring the Persian flag into the country or make a demonstration against their government in the stands like we saw in their first match against England. It's not going to have the same... The players will have more level of protection, therefore the onus falls on them sometimes to make a statement, and as John Amici talked about, all of it is too little, too late. I've known about this case since the first John Oliver piece in 2015. And at that time, I would have been in the 10th grade. The 10th grade was the first time that I learned about the human rights atrocities as it relates to the Qatari World Cup. And the fact that at the time, it was a 1,000 migrant workers who had died building the stadium. And in the time since, that number has climbed to 2,000, to 3,000, to 4,000 to 5,000, to anywhere between 6,000 and 12,000, of which the exact details we don't know exactly as it relates to deaths related to infrastructure projects directly associated with the World Cup. And what you have as the World Cup gets underway is we've known about this for years. Everyone has let it go too far as it relates to the FIFA bribery scandals and organization of these World Cups. And so what you have now is the events that will end up being the ones that we get that get serialized because they happen when all of the media coverage is on the World Cup. And here's the specific cases that I want to point out. again, I don't think we have all the information because the behavior doesn't match the action, which was the captains of seven World Cup teams, we're planning to wear one love armbands with all the colors of the Pride Flag and or the extended Pride Flag, not just the colors of the rainbow. You can also include the the black, the brown, um the light blue color for all of the people within the LGBTQIA plus pride flag, the you know, the extended one. And so after threatening to publicly to give out yellow cards. Privately, there may have been other consequences as a result. All of the teams decided to not wear those armbands. Instead, I believe Harry Kane I, I opted for an a, a anti-discrimination armband, a generic anti-discrimination armband, which in and of itself was a compromise because of the governing body and the host country with which these players are partaking in having a certain level of authority in an authoritarian dictatorship over the conduct of the World Cup. Similar situation they showed the Qatari fans that were entering the stadium, a panding crowd of 30 or I'm sorry, 20,000 Qatari people. Again, the population of naturalized citizens in Qatar is about 300,000. There's 3 million people in Qatar, only 300,000 are naturalized citizens, which means similar to the demographics of the, the Western world during the era of slavery, you have a population of naturalized citizens that make up 5 to 10% of the population, and the vast majority of the rest is forced labor and laborers who cannot leave the country or change jobs under their own free will. There's a reason this pattern keeps coming up. It is economically viable and morally abhorrent. So you have that as the backdrop for players planning to protest on behalf of one of LGBTQIA plus people and the rights of the people within the um, within the government. And if you watch the John Oliver piece, there's a good metaphor that they bring up with the um, the man who had um, left. Qatar to seek asylum in the united states for being publicly out and the thing that he talked about is it's basically it like an abusive household that hosts a fancy dinner party where other kids can bounce up and down on the couch and make a mess because they're guests whereas the pe- the children who live there and are being abused by the parents in this metaphor being the government They know that once all the people leave and all the media disappear, all the people disappear, you are going to be beaten. You are going to be abused. You're going to be sent to concentration camps and you're going to be sent to Qatari prison or perhaps prison and be extradited to another country. And so this is a circumstance of life and death in which the protests have a level of meaning that similarly probably won't change many results it'll change a handful of results perhaps in the host countries of the places in which they're engaging in a protest but by this point the protest has lost its meaning and so the protest that loses its meaning you end up making the decision based on the pressure from the authorities being fifa and the qatari government that they just don't wear the armbands and they just decide to not wear the armband at that point all seven teams as far as i'm aware not everyone's played yet but all seven teams plan to not wear the armbands anymore during the broadcast of england's game against wales alex scott who uh, used to play on the english uh, women's national team is working as a broadcaster for the bbc um she while boots on the ground in qatar wore the one love armband on television today which is an incredibly powerful symbol and courageous symbol that does hold some level of meaning. And as long as people continue to associate that level of meaning with it, perhaps it'll change a handful of people's thinking around this issue. Again, it's, it's, it's symbolic in nature and it will not be enough to protect the Qatari people who again face criminalization. It's a life and death matter of being gay and lgbtqia plus within that country and as a result of that it's a, it's a strong powerful message and at the same time only goes so far because the protest loses its meaning once the players have reneged on that stance uh the other situation that i want to talk about is grant wall who um is covering the united states national team uh he wore a soccer, a t-shirt that if you see the picture on Grant Wall's Twitter, it's a soccer ball with a rainbow coming out in a circle around the soccer ball. As he was walking into the stadium, security guard refused to let him in. He ended up being detained for 25 minutes, was allowed to enter the stadium with the shirt still on, um, but was told basically, you have to change your shirt. It's not allowed. Journalists have been told to Um, basically take down their cameras within public spaces because you are not allowed to film within Qatar. Um, Journalists are not allowed to film in public spaces in Qatar. There's not the same freedom of press, of course, under an authoritarian regime that doesn't have the same levels of basic human rights. And so you have a similar situation there as it relates to Grant Wall. Uh, the English, Wel- English, Welsh, Belgian, uh, Holland, being the Netherlands, Swiss, German, and uh, Dutch teams were all planning to wear the, flat- the one pride armbands, and thus far two of them have not. The other ones haven't played their matches yet, but it doesn't seem like they are planning to at this time, and so those are specific instances in which speaking out on behalf of LGBTQIA plus people as allies... Or as gay people themselves is basically being met with resistance as it relates to controlling the message with an authoritarian regime within an authoritarian government that has been awarded the World Cup and is being enabled by the governing body around that World Cup to whitewash away protests, control the messaging to their best of their abilities, and power through the World Cup, and as John Amici said, receive all of the benefits of hosting the World Cup, such as they already have, on the backs of tens of thousands of either dead people, people placed in jail for being gay, people placed in jail for being women. The, the Qatar uh, team played their first match at the World Cup on Sunday. The entire crowd of Qatari people was all men, 20,000 people, all men. Within the stands, because traditionally women are not allowed to be within public spaces, similar to a World Cup match, under the the Sharia law. Similar situation to what's happening in Iran, and the Iranian players made a a protesting statement where they wouldn't sing the national anthem. People who were in the stadium were protesting, but it wasn't shown on any of the um, U.S. broadcasts, as far as my knowledge is concerned. They didn't show anyone on national broadcasts and international broadcasts, they would not air protesters on behalf of the Iranian people. And they were um, taking away the Persian flags that people were trying to bring into the stadium. People made their statements and you can find a lot of them on Twitter and YouTube clips and media coverage surrounding the Iranian match. And um, this was the second story that I wanted to touch on briefly was the, the story around the Iranian people. But More specifically, the bigger story that I wanted to dive into is basically why the rights of gay people are under attack across the world, but specifically in a country in which this is a matter of life and death on a very natural level. Being publicly out is a matter of life and death, is a matter of, as we talked about with the story involving uh, Mr. Nasser or Dr. Nasser Mohammed. You're talking about a situation where you lose your inheritance, are forced to flee the country. Um, You are estranged from your family and facing criminal prosecution. If you ever return to your home country, you are in that type of life and death situation. This world cup brought an incredible amount of media attention. And what that media attention can do is actually drive some level of change within Not just the Qatari government and the Qatari people, but specifically as it relates to the home countries of the people that we're talking about here. We have the evidence, we know, that increased media coverage around human rights atrocities leads to changes systematically over time. Now, it's important to talk about how that gets covered. And any media attention is better than none. Some media attention is better than any. Because it actually goes into detail to talk about the fact that it is abhorrent. It is abhorrent that money and resources are being poured into a country from countries all over the world and a governing body that represents global soccer. It is abhorrent that resources are being poured into a country that prosecutes and criminalizes LGBTQIA plus people and takes away their basic human rights. So this is the part where I might put together a call to action. And this call to action in this case is a little bit more complex. We have lots of people who listen internationally to this podcast and... In this situation, most of the listeners come from either the United States or Europe. We do have a handful of you uh, coming over from a variety of Asian countries, which thank you for continuing to support the show. We also have some people who listen uh, over in Australia. I think Morgan has a a good bit to do with that. So thank you to all of our Australian brothers and sisters who listen to the show. A handful of people over in La República Dominicana. We appreciate you stopping in, but for the most part, we're talking about people who listen to the show either in the United States, Western Europe, Asia, or Australia. Specifically, the United States and Canada. And the human rights of the Qatari government are a lot... There's a lot of geopolitical situations, and so on an individual level, it's difficult to effectuate change. The best I've figured out that I can do personally for myself is... Just not watch the World Cup and not give the Qatari government or people in business with the Qatari government resources. And I understand that's an incredibly slippery slope considering the United States is also in business with the Qatari government. But the the entities I'm specifically talking about that with which I can control are Fox, their broadcast team as it relates to the World Cup, the FIFA governing body... And sponsors of the World Cup? I mean, I'm not really drinking Budweiser, and I'm not really flying Qatar Airlines, so, you know, just not giving my resources to those people and those business partners is a small way to effectuate change because the the dollars do end up making a difference. But like John Amici said, all the benefits... And all of the rewards have already been handed out for this World Cup. So how can you effectuate change and how, what can we control? Well, whenever we talk about cases of LGBTQIA plus rights and the culture within sports around gay transgender peoples, because sports are incredibly abhorrent relative to other entertainment vessels and cultures, as it relates to the inclusion of gay, lesbian, transgender, queer, asexual, intersex peoples, and everyone else, I am apologize, I didn't list you on the LGBTQIA plus spectrum. Sports culture is a place that I think actually has a chance to effectuate change on an individual level and on a group level in the not-so-distant future. Uh, when it when we're talking about infinite causes such as this, where we're talking about granting gay, transgender peoples the rights, or sorry, we're granting LGBTQIA plus peoples the basic rights of anyone else that is a cause that I will fight for the rest of my life and never see it actually reaching the dream. If you want to point to like Martin Luther King's dream about racial reconciliation, if you want to point to a day in which LGBTQIA plus people in the United States have the same basic human rights as anyone else, as someone who is uh, as someone who is straight, as someone who is cisgender, as someone who is female and straight, or female and cisgender, you can point to any of these situations and say, that is a dream that we can strive for, carry the torch towards, and also I will probably never see in my lifetime. We'll probably never see it happen in my lifetime because we're talking about thousands of years of persecution. Of gay, lesbian, transgender, bisexual, queer peoples, we're talking about thousands of years of persecution of these peoples, and so as a result, you, I will probably never, you and I will probably never see the day in which basic human rights can be achieved for all peoples on the LGBTQIA plus. I, I don't want to say spectrum, but just the collective of LGBTQIA plus peoples. So one of the ways that I talk about in sports all the time of effectuating change, it's a reasonable goal that I think can be attainable within sports culture as it relates to gay people, which is let's actually empower gay people to come out within the spaces of male sports, specifically male sports. Let's empower gay people to be publicly out and loved Within the spaces of sports, we've talked to Chris Cluey before whose NFL career was cut short as he was an ally when he was a punter for the Minnesota Vikings on behalf of same-sex marriage and ultimately the, the special teams coach who was also the interim coach for two games for the Cleveland Browns when Stefanski had covid uh, he had the now infamous quote about taking. This is ten years ago. Taking the, all of the gays, moving them to an island and nuking it until it glows. And we ha- and I hate repeating that over and over, but it's important to just keep reemphasizing that was nine years ago. Chris Cluey is in his forties, and he was his NFL career was cut short by two to three years because of him being an ally for gays and uh, same-sex marriage within the NFL space. And male sports specifically have done a poor job of empowering people to be publicly out and loved and accepted within the spaces of the male sports locker room. There's one publicly out football player. There are zero publicly out basketball players. There are zero publicly out baseball players currently in Major League Baseball. I'm going to guess it's zero publicly out hockey players, although I don't know that evidence off the top of my head. And so... As a result, you have people who are gay within these spaces who aren't free to be publicly out, even to teammates and people whom they care about. And if you remove that stigma within sports, which is one of the... I mean, sports reflects society, but sports is an entertainment arena in which the culture has dictated this over many decades and we're not doing anything to break down those walls if we work to break down those stigmas and break down those barriers you can actually effectuate a level of cultural change that will ultimately potentially lead to economic change and political change and other forms of change starting with the cultural changes within sports locker rooms we could talk a, we could use sports as a vehicle to address the the levels of homelessness among lgbtqia plus youth which are significantly higher because they they are publicly out and are disowned by their families in a similar way to uh, Dr. Nasir Muhammad was in the the time piece that we talked about earlier. Now, they don't have to necessarily flee to another country and seek asylum, but being estranged from your family, losing your inheritance, homelessness, these are all things that can exist and, and ultimately relay to the next point that I want to talk about, rates of depression, suicide, mental illness, are higher among LGBTQIA+ plus people than the general population in large part due to the stigmas associated with discrimination for gay and bisexual and queer peoples and transgender peoples because of that stigma and because of the denial of basic human rights within the United States and the west call it western world like US, Canada, etc. Because of this, you have circumstances in which sports can be an incredible vehicle to help develop loving relationships with people who don't have another outlet. I mean, the the transgender laws within many states that have been uh, essentially political pawn laws that don't actually come based on circumstantial evidence basically bar transgender people from participating in youth sport, which is an incredibly, incredibly discriminatory thing to do and a violation of basic human rights that probably lead to levels of, I mean, we have evidence that suggests transgender athletes face levels of, of mental illness and suicide and depression, and those who might want to be athletes are barred from doing so and, and lead to negative life outcomes, you can actually affect a level of cultural change that will then, over time, potentially work to impact other forms of change. So I will always point to that whenever we talk about what can we do. Specifically, as it relates to the United States and the sports culture, as it relates to that, those are more practical ways that you can actually achieve a level of change. If you work on, if we as a collective work on improving the cultural dynamics of the sports locker room, especially in male sports, to empower people to be themselves and be loved and accepted within the male sports locker rooms, that they are more comfortable being themselves and coming out similar to what Carl Nazib did with the Raiders and don't have that be something that can ruin your career. If you point to using sports as a way to address mental illness and suicide and depression among LGBTQIA plus people, you could point to sports being a vehicle to help prevent LGBTQIA plus homelessness and acceptance and inclusion among families. Those are real practical changes that can be made to address this. And I know that this ends up coming thousands of miles away from the Qatari government. And we're talking about basic human rights as it relates to that. But as it relates to conversations about gay people and transgender people and lesbians and queer people being less of human because they don't have the same level of human rights, you are essentially saying that they are less than human or less of a human than people who are not or who are male and straight, or women are female and straight, or male and cisgender, or female and cisgender. If you're saying that they don't have the same rights as people, you are saying that they are less people than those. And so, what can happen on the furthest ends of the spectrum is misinformation about gay people, conspiracy theories about gay people, and ultimately. Misinformation and conspiracy theories about LGBTQIA plus people lead to, across hundreds of years of history, more dead LGBTQIA plus people, more people whose lives are negatively impacted. And we're not just talking about suicide and we're not just talking about uh, depression as it relates to that, although those are cases in which LGBTQIA plus people suffer higher rates of depression and suicide than the general population. What we're also talking about is what happened over the weekend, where at a gay nightclub, five people are executed and 25 are injured. Some with life threatening illnesses or life threatening injuries because of a mass execution at a gay nightclub or a gay bar. Like what happened at Pulse in 2015, where 50 people are executed at a gay bar and a gay nightclub. That is what we are talking about when we're talking about life and death circumstances in countries in which it's not illegal to be gay. And yet you are less than human in the eyes of the population and the laws of these countries. And so we are talking about life and death matters in all of these circumstances. The United States just offers a more practical solution. And Canada... And Japan and the countries, the home countries of which the people listening to this are hearing, there are more practical ways to actually effectuate change and make an impact. Carry the torch so that it's a little less shitty for a person tomorrow. In a simple sense, not watching the Qatari World Cup is an easy way or not giving resources to the government or giving as few resources as you can. You know, I understand people who will watch the World Cup And ultimately that will drive revenue to Fox every second of watching it drives revenue on the individual level because you're paying for your eyeballs will lead to commercial viewership and commercial viewership pays the bills for the World Cup and the Fox's money is going directly to FIFA, which is then going to the Qatari government. I understand pouring as few resources into that can help effectuate a small level of change. It will not have as meaningful of an impact on a personal and interpersonal level than what you can do right now to actually effectuate a level of change. Because even in the United States, we're also talking about life and death matters as it relates to the rights of LGBTQIA plus people. In Qatar, it's a little bit more straightforward because it's expressly outlined in the laws United States it's also expressly outlined in the laws and it's outlined in circumstances where you have a mass execution of people one day before a world cup kicks off in the in the country in which the United States draws against Wales and everyone's going to gather around the TV and give money to the Qatari government with their eyeballs or perhaps give their money directly to the Qatari government because such are the circumstances that dictate this world cup You can effectuate change on a small level by not giving resources to governments and partners of the Qatari government. You can also effectuate change on a small level by working to change the culture around sports in a practical sense. Or just do it in the arenas outside of sports. Make an impact to be an ally. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for stopping in here to the Take It Easy podcast. We have episodes every single day, Monday through Friday, as well as wired up on Sundays occasionally. Thanks for stopping in as always. Again, check out all the stories that we cited here on the podcast today. There's a whole list of them down here on the uh, description to this episode. Uh, If you want to hear more information about other topics related to the uh, controversies of the Qatari World Cup, those are available as well. Take it easy, everybody. We'll talk to you again tomorrow.